Welcome to Why Am I Just Finding This Out? I'm your host, Kristen Stovern, women's health clinician for over 20 years, practicing in all areas of women's health with a passion to educate, empower, and leave a legacy of better health for women. Hello, welcome to another podcast on Why Am I Just Finding This Out? Today's guest is Dr. Gittler. Welcome, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. How are you? I am really good. It's beautiful outside here. How about there? I'm in Chicago and we have warm weather and no rain and it was a good weekend. So it's looking good in Chicago. Well, I love that. I think all of us, we have to remember to fill our cups and take the time to look outside and enjoy those around us and really appreciate that weather because there's storms to follow. So that ebbing and flowing in life, sometimes we have to take a deep breath and enjoy that. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. And I'm hoping that we can give some nuggets of information to women out there and to hopefully empower them to find the information and knowledge that they need and find people like you who really want to make a positive difference. So thank you for taking the time. It's nice to be here. So we're going to jump right in. And I have some questions that I know that you will be phenomenal at answering, but they get a little complex pretty quickly. So do you feel that the average young woman may know enough about their body and their sexual health, reproductive health? No, I don't. And I think one of the biggest confounding factors right now is the idea of women as a monolith, meaning we're all the same. And even when we try and categorize by age group, socioeconomic status, skin color, sexuality, no matter what, there are always still differences. And so across the board, I don't think anyone is educated enough, including myself. There's always more to learn. Absolutely. I love that. I think what I go back to for myself is one of the reasons I really feel passionately about educating women is because I didn't have that growing up and nor did I feel like I was given permission to ask the questions about my own body or understanding different aspects of women's health. And I feel that women today, there are many that still feel that same way, that there's a stigma attached so that information is not readily available or if the information's out there, it may not be entirely accurate. So I do agree with that statement. So on that same topic, what are some key issues or topics within sexual and reproductive health that seem like they're taboo, there's a stigma, maybe there's a lack of true information on that you find? I think the entirety is taboo across the board. And you mentioned a word that I want to be sure we talk about a little bit, but that idea of how much information is out there and remembering all information is not true. All information is not accurate. And sometimes certain information isn't even wanted. So really being mindful that in today's world, there's a load of information and sometimes it's too much. So when you have someone come in and they're having some issues with menstrual cycles or really maybe not understanding menstrual cycles, whether it's about reproductive health, whether it's about cramps, whether it's about how to prevent pregnancy, whether it's about certain aspects of their anatomy, not understanding their own anatomy, how do you direct them and how do you relieve some of the taboo or stigma behind those questions? 
often the first thing is to make sure people understand it's actually very simply complicated or complicated and Mm -hmm. simple. I have been in education and learning, I think, since preschool. But I've learned the science of the menstrual cycle at least 20 to 30 times. And I still have to look things up. So the notion that something's supposed to be super simple, it is. It's a cycle. And if you imagine a circle, but there are things that can interrupt it. And interruptions can be a little bump. They can be big delays, all that stuff. And so first emphasizing that my concerns might be different than your concerns. It could be different than someone else's concerns. So. When I'm talking to patients, reminding them a lot of what they read or hear about is going to be what we've decided and science is the average. And the average you can only get based on who are the people you're questioning. And so if all of the questions were done in 1950 in a small town in Ohio, then that's the averages of what you're going to get. And then at that time, that was probably the most widespread net they could reach. But now when you realize you have women across the globe who are communicating electronically, it changes a lot of that information. So that's really important to remember. That's an excellent response. And I love that you have such a desire to make sure that you look through and not around the disparities and the differences that we all have because the biases in healthcare are very strong, even to this day. And sometimes breaking through those barriers for patients is impossible, which is what leads them to not getting the care they need or not feeling comfortable asking the questions that they need to. So it sounds like you do a beautiful job of validating concerns and allowing that shame and stigma to break away. What needs to change so people that you're seeing and people that I'm seeing, women that are seeking care, to feel they can talk about the topics openly and freely without shame or stigma? What do we need to do to try to open up those conversations? We need to just have the conversations. You need to have the conversations and not only for me as the provider, be open to what a patient might say, but I would also say that sometimes people have to be open to what maybe they don't want to hear. And that's where we've really kind of reached an impasse. And I think that I do a good job with patients when we're trying to talk about a subject that maybe they've already made up their mind. And so the first thing I can only ask of everyone is to be open-eared and listen. And what I'm finding a lot is people ask questions because they want the answer that they want. And that's not actually the way we should be doing it. Because sometimes you have to hear things that maybe don't sit comfortably. And so if the first preface really is that we're doing the best we can for, or rather because we believe it's the right thing, that's what's important to remember. I really love that statement. I think giving women permission to that if the first person they talk to doesn't hear them or they perceive that they are not being heard, then you move on to another person and you seek the information that you need. That can be challenging depending on where your community is. That can be challenging based on geography, socioeconomic status, 
your access to care overall and your own life issues, but giving women the permission that if you're not getting the answers that you need, or you don't feel like you're being heard, that you do need to move on and that that is okay. You're not doing anything wrong by moving on from whoever that healthcare provider is that you're speaking to, that you need to be heard and be in a trusted relationship in order to have the care that you need. Yeah. When I talk to patients and they finally come to me and they'll often say like, where were you? Where have you been? And I get to say, I'm right here. And the realization that for the priorities people set, they will often spend a lot more time researching where they're going to buy their car, where they're going to get their hair done, because those are things that are really important to them. So the realization that you should be doing the same thing for your healthcare provider is a big deal. And it's also very important to remember in the course of this conversation that you and I work very hard to support and disseminate information and make sure people are educated and aware, but they might not like us or what we're saying. And that's okay. But instead of just doing the shutdown of, I don't like you and what you're saying to me, have those three dots at the end of the statement and go, and now I'm going to go find someone else instead of just, oh, well, that's it. So once again, on the same topic, what steps can women, and of course, men are included in this. I'm not trying to exclude that men aren't important, but women are the under-researched, underrepresented population for the most part. So the focus is women. How can they take care of their sexual and reproductive health? What steps would you suggest that a woman take that maybe is navigating this world and may not feel like she's had the support she's needed? What steps would you recommend? Education and learning is huge. Knowing your own body being aware of something. And even if you don't like it, it might not be bad. It might just be something you don't like. And I have to go straight to the science and talk about vaginal discharge because it is a topic that always comes up. It's frequently mentioned as infection instead of discharge. And I have to always bring it back home that you got to learn about it to know what's normal for you. Everyone's is different. And I think you know this about me already, Kristen, but I'm going to give you a little pushback that when we talk about health of women, reproductive health, et cetera, et cetera, I think the idea of not including men in the conversation makes us just as culpable mm-hmm. as the society before us that excluded women in those conversations. So Tupac was a great man. Everybody comes from a mama. That's great. So it means that everyone should be educated. And the idea that every male should be able to know where are the resources, whether it's for his mother, sister, or daughter. But when we, the idea that we make everything so separate, we're perpetuating the problem. I do not disagree. And I sometimes will have a patient quite surprised in a room when I'm explaining vaginal discharge and what's physiological discharge or what their anatomy is, which they've been unfamiliar with, and now they're in their 30s or 40s, and whether explaining how you feel hormonally and how your body is responding is not necessarily a problem, but a product of where they are in their cycle or in the reproductive time frame or what other factors in their life are going on. Explaining this in front of their partner, whether female or male, in front of a mother, a sister, a daughter, it's never stopped me because I feel that they need to hear the same information 
because they're also unaware. And if we come together on having these conversations that have been considered taboo or a stigma, and we actually speak openly in front of all audiences, that also will open the conversations to give permission to all of us to ask what we need to ask and not say, first, I'm embarrassed. I can't believe I don't know this. I'm scared. The words that make you feel like you are making a mistake by asking the questions or you're doing something wrong. That stigma, we've got to somehow eradicate. Good thing you brought this up, my friend. Because <laughs> here are the two things I got to say. One, you've used the word stigma and shame and all of this stuff. And all of this is really perpetuated when we have a conversation excluding other people, mm. right? Yeah. So, no, women are not going to openly talk about their private parts, mm-hmm. the giant breasts, whatever, until you can have it in a room with whoever is there. Right. So, yes, I can speak, forgive me for the heterosexual males in the world, but they tend to be highly motivated by vaginas also. So, why shouldn't they participate and be aware? of what is normative instead of maybe perpetuating those things that they learned and are wrong. And I think that's really where we've created a lot of or perpetuating this shame and stuff. I can say something to my female patient, but if there's a male there, I shouldn't. Or Mm -hmm. if their mom's there, I shouldn't. And I agree with you. That's when we go, no, this is just basic knowledge I'm going to talk to you about nutrition, if I'm going to talk to you about diabetes and hypertension, then I'm going to talk to you about this. And I think you mentioned this in the beginning, but I'm trained as a family medicine doctor. I know the most important thing to any person's health is their family. Because if your family is not okay, neither are you. When we're talking about this education piece, and I'm in a room with someone I will tell her or him or them, right? If I can teach you and give you a little bit of information that's new and you go and tell two people and then they tell two people that famous shampoo commercial from the 70s, it works. But most (laughs) importantly, I'm putting it out there for everyone. This is not just mine. This is Mm -hmm. public. Absolutely. I think that the motivation to break down those barriers is so important as a healthcare provider, but also for both of us that are educating the future healthcare providers to hopefully make a dent in how they provide the care with that openness, with that unbiased approach, and with that desire to break through some of the taboo subjects and make them a normal conversation for all to have. And hopefully we're doing so, but we'll both continue to attempt to make that difference. Yeah, Kristen, one of the things, again, to remember, we're doing this podcast about reproductive, sexual, maybe we should just be calling it gendered healthcare. Gendered healthcare. But the reality is, Mm -hmm. this is healthcare. I blame, in some ways, us in medicine, because we have allowed gendered healthcare to be different than healthcare. And I get into this It won't shock you. I get into some uh, arguments sometimes (laughs) that if I'm talking to a patient about diabetes and hypertension, I'm obligated to ask about smoking. That's a risk factor. And so if I'm talking to you about a sexually transmitted infection or, I mean, honestly, even if we're talking about anxiety or depression, 
It is appropriate to see what's going on with your relationships. It is appropriate to see what's going on with your home life. Mm-hmm. And so the full circle of how do we destigmatize the shame or the there's going to be a lot of different words we have to use because I think shame shuts people down is being able to talk about what happens in someone's bedroom the same way we do about what's happening in their kitchen. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. We've just realized in primary care and medicine how important sleep is. Right. Yes, it is. Very. But we also know there is a physical and emotional health that comes with one's sexuality. Right. And it doesn't matter who's in bed with you because we could be talking about you, yourself, and you. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. But that is a big part of your health care. Yes. And so being able to have that conversation, the same way I can say, hey, do you eat dinner at the dinner table with your family? Do you use a plate and have portions? When you go to sleep at night, are you comfortable? Do you feel safe? So one of the things is being able to expand these conversations. And when you introduced and we talked about the healthcare of women, I think you gave an age range. Mm-hmm. And I would just expand that to say everybody. Yes, the age range, just to reference that for the listeners, is I've been working on a study for my target population for the study to keep it narrow was 18 to 55-year-old reproductive age women. However, in that study, I did include all age ranges and will consider doing cross-sectional research based on those that fell outside those parameters. But the goal ultimately is trying to leave a legacy of better health for all women in whatever capacity that I can. And that was the impetus of this podcast. As you know, Dr. Gittler, we've talked about that the number of times I've had a patient in my office over the last two decades that says to me, why am I hearing this for the first time? Why has no one ever told me that? Why did no one explain that to me? That makes so much sense. And that dialogue has repeated itself over and over and over. All the while, I feel honored that I'm educating someone on something they'd never heard before, but at the same time feeling like, why? Why is this the first time you're learning this? That's not okay. Not judging what their background is. It's just a general statement of, wanting to allow for all of us to be able to get the information education we need, because ultimately, the more we know about ourselves and our bodies, the more likely we are to live a healthy life. Kristen, I'm glad you gave that age range to your listeners, because I think if they have the reaction I do, they would go, okay, what's so magical about 18? Mm. Why do you include 17-year-olds? And really reminding people that even though we're healthcare providers and doctors were actually scientists and we were trained about how to do things to come up with some answers. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know that some of the things that we have to include or exclude don't really make sense to us. Mm-hmm. But when you're following scientific methods so that you can make a statement that is then fact, mm-hmm. that's really that idea of we want to be sure that things people are reading are based in evidence and the idea that it can be either reproducible or not. So it does limit us. We know that maybe a 17-year-old 
will have the same issues as a 19-year-old, but you're limited by that. Right. Well, and as you well know, when you're having to do, when you're doing human research, you have to have a review board to approve it. And vulnerable populations are going to be those under 18, pregnant, those that have certain accessibility or disabilities. We have to be very cognizant to not create biases or exclusions of people based on that. And so that does for the scientific portion of any research, when you're trying to really find significance to do that, we have to do a population that is going to be approved and not inadvertently put humans at harm. And so the intent is not to leave anybody out. The intent is hopefully to serve this population to then bridge off of that in the best, most respectful and fair way which is what science is about. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Thank you for that. So on this topic of which you are clearly an expert as a family practice physician that's done a great deal in reproductive services, what are some of the challenges and barriers to providing these services that you've come across? And I'm sure you're working to try to decrease those, but what are those challenges and barriers and what can be done to make these a little easier for access to services? We have to think about When you say access, it's not just something that's there, but literally can someone physically get to it? How do Mm -hmm. they get to it? And then once they get to it, can they afford it? So that's going to be a huge barrier. And the irony, I live in Chicago, major metropolitan area with public transportation, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you are not in the same situation. It can be just as hard from a woman on the West side to find a clinic to get to as it is from for someone in Southern Missouri. Even once you can get there, and I mean physically, get the time to get to an office and be able to access it, then can you afford it? And we right. have to then include the ideas of insurance, finances, and honestly, priorities. The number of times I have someone with me whose nails are done, their hair is done, and they're telling me they can't afford something, I have to think about those priorities. Mm-hmm. And as a society, we've decided healthcare is not a priority. Financially, it is not a priority. When we look at the geographic differences in the United States, and people always bring up access to abortion care which clearly we can discuss, but it becomes divisive. So I will put that to the side for a minute because we're talking about basic health care. If you can't get birth control paid for or a pap smear paid for, you're not going to do it. So in my conversations with administrators or anyone who will listen, honestly, reminding people that if you're asking someone to choose between paying rent versus something else. They're always going to pay their rent, hopefully. And in today's day and age, things like getting your nails or your hair, those are deemed essentials. Mm -hmm. And I might disagree, but I need to be aware of what my patient thinks is important. And so that's really, really important. So on the topic of abortion, which you brought up, I do think it's important for us to just give a little bit of attention that Roe v. Wade and what occurred a year ago and how it has changed for much of the country access to reproductive services, which for my area of the country has been a real step back 
because there are places that, yes, they provided abortion services, but they also provided reproductive education, care, majority of that time that was without cost to patients, to women and men. And we've lost a lot of that within the last year because of legislation changes. And for all of us that want to maybe turn a blind eye on this because it's hard to discuss or it's not something that you want to have the conversation about because it's something that comes with a lot of controversy. I do want to draw attention to the fact that Roe v. Wade and what it did for each state and across the country and the adversity that's occurred and the divide that's occurred because of people's belief in pro-life or pro-choice or whatever your opinion is, ultimately that overturning legislation has reduced access to care for women all over this country. And those that are harmed the most are those with the biggest barriers in their own lives, whether it's geography, economy, support, their overall cultural surroundings. And so just for our listeners, I want you all to recognize that whenever we bring up the word abortion or abortion care or any places that might have provided that, there was a lot more to those places, those clinics, than what many realize. And the loss of that very intentional care has been harmful and could result in bigger issues with healthcare for our women. Um, Our maternal mortality morbidity is already at a crisis level. Now we're going to add that possibly putting women in situations that may not be optimal for them could worsen their health as well. I'm going to go back to the statement that I made before about being a family medicine doctor. I'm a family practitioner and I take care of families. And I chose to go into healthcare to provide healthcare to people. And so I will go back to the same sentiment that healthcare is diverse for different people, depending on where they are at different points in their life. And what I've found throughout my career, almost 25 years, is that people don't know what they don't know. And you're not really concerned about those things that don't impact you until they impact you. And the Seeing patients all of a sudden get concerned about their cholesterols because now they're in their 40s or 50s when before they didn't, or seeing people concerned about diabetes because now a family member has it, or concerns about Alzheimer's because now their family is living with it, is the reason I have to remind people that healthcare is healthcare and healthcare providers should provide it. And we have done and I mean, we, everyone, men, women, right. everyone, a disservice by allowing certain aspects of it to be segregated. And I use the word segregated specifically because we've learned it doesn't work. It's bad. It doesn't matter in what shape or form. It's just bad. It doesn't right. help people. So to take certain parts of healthcare and segregate them and isolate them has had the same negative outcomes with the same trickle-down effect, or people often will relate to the ripple. You drop a stone, and you don't realize how far that ripple's going to go until that ripple rocks your boat. And I think that's the same thing for other parts of healthcare, whether it is the choice to contracept, the choice to end a pregnancy because you want to, the necessity 
to end a pregnancy because it's not in the right place or it occurred while you're on a medication that's bad for you or occurred and it could take your own life. There are so many little rippling effects that I couldn't even know all of them. And I was in med school for four years. And so trying to prepare people for what life might bring, might not bring, it's our job as healthcare providers to make sure that people have all of the knowledge that they need. And so again, I think reproductive health of women should be known by men and women. Well, and you bring up a thought that I just had as we're working to close this episode, and hopefully I'll get to speak with you again soon on here because you have a voice that needs to be heard. You bring up a topic that I just want to say that as a healthcare provider myself and as a woman myself, I still learn every day and I don't know everything. And I'm okay asking the questions and I'm okay saying, I'm not really sure, but I will try to find out. I will work to find out or even learning more from my patients than I learn myself from whatever literature I'm reviewing or whatever mentor I have that being okay with, we are all learning and navigating this and doing the best we can. And what we taught or what we advised 10 years ago was not going to be what it is today because we also are learning as we go. And there are conversations that have been able to be happening now that couldn't happen for us 10 years ago or even 20 years ago. And as women that are providing health care in an area that we were learning and a model of care that left a lot of information out, we also have to be aware that we're all different people from different backgrounds. And so that's what makes us learn from one another. And giving the grace to each of us to realize that who we are each day is hopefully growing, changing, improving, opening these avenues of conversations that weren't there before and allowing all of us to maybe stumble a little bit, give better advice now than we did before and move forward. Hey, so this is a really good, funny segue because (laughs) here's the thing that happened at work the other day. We have one big room All the providers hang out in it, doctors, nurses, OBs, family med, pediatrics, name it. That's our workspace. And I was having a very open conversation about my perimenopausal status and questions. And I was talking to a good friend, colleague, and something came up where I said, this thing happened in my 40s. I started smelling when my period would come. I was like, what? And I'm saying this at a doctor's room and someone else across the room chimed in. Wait, I get that. (laughs) We're not talking about conversations that couldn't happen 10 years ago, 20 years ago. How about five years ago? What even now in certain settings? But so, right, the talk of one of your podcasts, really, the title is, Can You Smell My Vagina? That's literally what happened is was next to another women's healthcare provider. And I was like, hey, listen, will you let me know if you can smell my vagina from over there? Oh my gosh. And it became kind of this joke. And yes. Ha, ha, ha. But I was telling my niece that weekend, and she's significantly younger than I am. And she had a Aunt Mandy, I've been thinking the same thing. <laughs> and so here we are. I'm not even at work, but across literally decades of life, Mm -hmm. same questions. And I'm 25 years into a career of taking care of women. I still got these questions. So Kristen, when I meet you, just let me know if you can smell my vagina. Well, and what I'll turn that around and say to you is, you know, your vagina has its own microbiome and hormonally as your hormones change, it changes that microbiome. And so it is one of those 
signaling symptoms that are a symptom to what's really going on in your entire body. Stepping back and when that's occurring, yes, that's going to happen as you have these ebbs and flows of hormones, but also looking at what's your diet like? What's your stress like? How much are you sleeping? What are what kind of water are you drinking? What clothing are you wearing? So when you go into that and realize your vagina is really a symptom, it's just your vagina is like a blood pressure, a heart rate, a temperature. It literally will tell you something about yourself that's huge. And it's more of a, oh, this happened. So now I need to look at okay, what was I doing this last month to two months that's created this now? And so as we age, we're more vulnerable and we're less resilient. And so as we're less resilient, we are more likely to have these strange symptoms like your vaginal area smells different or certain triggers to that definitely have a reason. And as we ebb and flow through life, realizing our bodies are going to ebb and flow. And if we'll listen to those cues, we can respond much more quickly before it becomes an issue that's bigger than that. I've had women who've said weird things like that to me before, or they have this weird rash, or maybe it's a headache or whatever it is. And I start digging into their history and their story and find out that they probably have been now exposed to maybe way too much gluten or way too much processed foods, or it was around the holidays and they were taking in a lot more sugars and those sugars are going to feed yeast and that yeast colonizes in your gut and then colonizes vaginally. And then you have less hormones because your estrogen is lower because you're perimenopausal. And so the story goes, but you bring up an excellent point. Did I learn any of that in school? Nope. Did I learn any of that from any of my mentors through practice? Nope. I sure didn't. Did I teach anyone that 15 years ago? No, I did not. Did I get a lot of pushback in the last decade when I have been teaching those kind of things from other healthcare providers who think what I'm saying was crazy at the time, but now suddenly are listening? Yes, that's true. And so powering through that and realizing, you know what, it is what it is. I'm going to give you the education that you need because you need it. And it may not be what anyone else wants to accept as true, but your vagina, your cycles, your periods, your symptoms are a vital sign. And you just yeah. shared it in a lounge. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I'll share my vital signs anywhere. <laughs> so as we close, I'd like to close with a final question. And it's meant not to be controversial necessarily, but just more of if you had the ability to dream on what the future could look like in the next five years, what could the future of reproductive justice look like? If we open the doors of our legislative branches to clinics to if you had just the ability to dream what could the future of reproductive justice look like? The equality is a word that comes to mind. And I, it's just what's popping into my mind. I think equality so that everyone's treated equal or is equal access. And I think openness, reproductive health, and maybe I just put in their sexuality, but it's really very personal. And it's amazing to me how public people will be about saying something can't happen when it really shouldn't impact them. We want to protect people who can't or shouldn't make decisions for themselves, the young people, maybe with a mental disability. But otherwise, if someone is doing something for themselves and it doesn't impact me, why am I getting involved to discriminate against that? I lived through the AIDS epidemic, and I'm now a provider looking at how well we are doing with something that was so demonized. Mm -hmm. And we have people living healthy, functional lives. So that same idea across the board, we can get rid of the stigmas, 
and approach it as a basic part of healthcare. Well, Mandy, I so appreciate your time today. And listeners, I would love for any feedback or suggestions for future conversations because she is a wealth of knowledge and absolutely is a champion for all wanting to really give the most care and advocacy for each one of us. It's time to be seen and heard. Everyone deserves an optimal and just opportunity to live a healthy life where the culture and mindset are free from any form of discrimination. We are facing difficult times in women's health and champions like Dr. Gittler and those that are really working towards providing care in a way that is meeting you where you are is the future of true better health in this country. Thank you, Mandy, for your time today. Thanks, Kristen. And you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of Why Am I Just Finding This Out? We are facing a crisis in women's health. It is time to be seen and heard. It is time to address medicine and wellness for women holistically. And whatever we do, let's strive to leave a legacy of better. Thank you. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult your healthcare provider.